This morning, we're going to be storing through one uh, giant story in the Old Testament, and we're going to be covering 10 chapters of the Bible. All right, and we're not going to read all 10 chapters, just letting you know. We're going to story through uh, 10 chapters um, of the, the life of Joseph in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to get there. But, but as we're talking about leading ourselves, there's, there's this kind of Im- image or this illustration that I wanted to kind of start this morning's talk off with. And, and it's the whole idea of having an, an emotional bank. I don't know if you guys have one, uh, like a jar or something in your house that's just full of change. Um, we have a, a penny jar, and um, we fill it up, and it's about this big. And right now it's empty. We emptied it and deposited it into a savings account. And it's funny because you think, wow, that's a lot. And then it's like, oh, it's like $10, right? Or whatever it is. It's like pennies, but it's, you know, it's still money, right? It's, it's money that, uh, that otherwise would disappear in a couch somewhere. But I, I want us to think about this. Think about this jar as being a, um, an emotional bank account. Like each of us each day have things that make deposits and withdraws from our emotional life and our relational life, right? Um, some things like really fill us up and it's like, oh yeah, it's like putting some deposits in, like that really helped me a lot. And some things are like, oh, I had to be around that person. It's like, okay, uh, that just took a lot out of my emotional bank account. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've had a day like this where you started with a good night's sleep. And a good night's sleep, I mean, that can solve a lot of problems, can it? Like, like if you get a good night's sleep and you wake up and you feel good, it's like, whoo. All right, I feel like I can accomplish some things today. And, and, um, and so maybe there was some, still some change, emotional change on the counter. And you, and, uh, and you wake up and maybe you're like, I feel good this morning. And the first thing you do is pray. It's like, okay, awesome. And you talk to God. And all of a sudden you have this peace that kind of comes over you. Like, wow, okay, this day's going to start great. And so a little bit more gets deposited into your uh, emotional account. And then you go into the kitchen and you realize you forgot to buy coffee. And all of a sudden, like, your emotions are not as good anymore, right? Like, I can't survive without my coffee, my caffeine, my start to my day. And so that kind of empties some emotional, uh, you know, coins out of your bank account. You're like, oh, man, that didn't go well. And, and so it, now you're kind of a little bit in a different mood as, as you're getting to work. And so you hop in your car, you drive to work, but there's construction. And that construction is holding you back, and you are just going to be right on time for work. And so you start getting a little more stressed out the longer you wait. Every second, your emotional bank account's going down a little bit more, that you're sitting there waiting as all these cars are coming your way, and they have the stop sign facing you. Until you finally get to work, but it's late. And so now you're dealing with the start of your workday with not as much in your emotional bank account. Now imagine your boss comes up to you, and sees that you're late, and you're like, oh, man. And your boss comes up and says, hey, oh, did you get stuck in that traffic too? That was annoying, wasn't it? Hey, I just want to say thank you for working on that project. I think it's come along really well. And all of a sudden, some things got put back in your emotional bank account, and you feel valued. We'll leave that one there. <laughs> I'll, use it. I'll create some illustration with that one. Um, <laughs> And so you're feeling good about the day, and, and then you realize, oh, yeah, on my calendar, I have a lunch with my best friend that day. So I get to go hang out with my best friend at a restaurant we all like, and, and all of a sudden, you're, you're starting to fill back up. Your emotional tank's like, yeah, that's a, this is okay. This is trying to be a good day. And then you get back to work, and all of a sudden, one of your coworkers comes up to you, and something did not go well with that project that your boss was saying that was, you know, really excited about it, but, but something went really, really bad. And now your coworker's blaming you for it, even though you had nothing to do with it. And now you're wrestling with, well, that's annoying. And your emotional account kind of empties out again. And you end the day feeling a little bit down. You started late, and now you have to drive home. And, uh, and, and hoping that construction's not there again, 
but it's there again. And so on your way home, it gets emptied all over. But then you decide, I'm just going to calm myself down. I'm going to turn on some worship music and just be quiet. And you start listening to some truth and some worship. And slowly as you're driving home, your emotional tank starts to get filled up and your focus changes and you start seeing God. And by the time you get home, your tank's a little more full so you can deal with the family and what's coming up next and where you got to go. And, uh, and then you get to eat a, a good meal with your family and sit around the table. And it's always good having conversations and seeing how people's doing, uh, you know, how your kids are doing, how your family's doing. And, and, um, and then you decide to go on a walk. And by the end of the day, your emotional tank's filled back up again. Now, that might not be your day. But I'm, I'm giving this picture that all of us have this, right? All of us have this. And it goes up and it goes down, moment by moment, event by event, relationship by relationship. Things um, suck life out of us, <laughs> and there's things that put life back into us. And we have to be careful to know where is our account? How are we doing, really? Because I know there's some seasons of our life where it feels a lot like that. And when all of a sudden things don't go well, and you already didn't have anything to give, what happens when crap hits the fan? You hit the fan, right? <laughs> things blow up. So the importance as we're talking about, there's another one, self-leadership. When we're talking about self-leadership, this whole idea of your own personal bank account, leading your emotions well, knowing how you're doing. Now, it's easy to kind of think about a day like that. Now, let's think about a lifetime like that. When you think about your whole life up until today, um, there's probably been seasons where the bank account has been empty and seasons where it's been, well, I'm feeling really good and life is really good right now. And you feel that even in a longer period of time. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. The reality is all of us have the same amount of time every single day, don't we? That's the one equal, um, equalizer of everybody's life. We all have the same amount of minutes, the same amount of seconds every single day. And some people use them to do things that blow your mind. Like, how are they accomplishing so much in their life? And, and like, they have the same amount as I do. And what's that tension? You know, how, there's, there's some principles in that. There's some principles in this. Um, there's a scripture, a couple of scriptures I want to start off with this morning as we're talking about the emotional bank account. Um, and, and here are the scriptures. Psalm 90, 12 says, teach us, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Like, teach us, God, like the breadth and the length of our, of our life so that we can understand we want to get wisdom. We, we want to keep our tank full. We want to do the right things. Matthew 6, 34, where Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us about the worries of life, the things that come and things that go, the things you have. And this is what he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And some of us say, amen, right? Each day, yes. Like, so He's like, why worry about tomorrow? You're, you're putting deposits, emotional bank account deposits into something that doesn't exist yet. And some people live their life like that. It's a life of worry where you are continually being poured out of things that haven't even happened. And you play out the what if record that just keeps repeating itself about tomorrow. So we want to learn how do we number our days? How do we have a focus so that we can lead ourselves well and that we're making sure we're taking care of ourselves as God is teaching us and helping us grow 
Now, last week, um, Nikki did a great job teaching us about these circles of control and no control. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and watch that message. I'm going to do a 30-second um, update on that, okay? So you can all be on the same page. Um, but we talked about this circle of control in our life of self-leadership, that there's things you can control and things you cannot control, right? Inside the middle of this is you, and these are the things that are within your control. Decisions you make, decisions and relationships you have, um, you are in control of you. The circle of no control is the things you have no control over. Like, like in my picture here, you, you would have no control over road construction, right? So you being upset and frustrated and dumping out your emotional bank account for something you had no control over seems like a waste of an investment, doesn't it? So like, that's what we're talking about. Like, how can we be sure that we are leading us, the things that we can control in our life, <clears throat> so that the things we have no control over, things and circumstances that come into our life, don't rip from our life, don't deplete us completely emotionally. Now, you will go through times where these circumstances are so heavy, you're going to feel like this inner circle is really small, right? And that's where you need Jesus. <laughs> that's where you need God and other people in your life to help you continually gain perspective and to stay focused and to, to walk in, in the healing things and not let yourself get into the pit of things, okay? But this is what we're talking about, you. How can we live in the circle of control for us and for our life? So we are going to learn this morning. I'm going to do my best to story through um, uh, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And if you kind of grew up in church, you've probably heard the story of Joseph and the, the coat of many colors and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and so we're going to talk about him in hopefully a way that connects with all of us because I'm using something that actually um, this last summer made an impact on me in a pretty powerful way. Uh, a few of us on our team, our leadership team, were able to go to a conference in Pennsylvania with Converge, which is our network of churches. And uh, we did this pre-conference of self-leadership and, and the journey of leadership and things. And one of the things we did was this, was this chart of peaks and valleys. We had to go back and think through our, kind of our whole life and write down five or four peaks, those really awesome experiences that we had in our life, or those kind of life-changing, wow, I remember that, that was kind of a defining moment kind of thing. And then we had to, to also then put the valleys, the things that really sucked, the things that were really hard, that we wish weren't there, but they were there, and that was a part of our journey. And as we went through and storied through these peaks and valleys, it's interesting how you see the thread of God through it. And, and so as I'm going to do this with the life of Joseph, I'm, I'm wanting you guys to understand, I want you to do this for you. I want you to, to think about your life. Think about your emotional bank account. And, and think about those peaks and valleys of your life. And where was God in it? What did he do? How was he present? Okay. Um, so, so I'm going to teach you as I teach you. Does that make sense? I'm going to give a picture and we're going to learn about Joseph's life. So is everybody with me? All right, so if you want to, you can, we can jump into the Bible with me in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible um, that you have. So uh, Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 37 uh, to start, but again, it goes from 37 all the way to 47, and so we're, I'm going to be more storing than reading it, word for word, okay? But I want us to start together in the Scripture so we can learn about Joseph um, in, in his life. So we, we know Joseph's uh, father was Jacob. Jacob was, was, uh, received God's promise. His name turned into Israel, which is now, you know, the Jewish people, God's chosen people through the whole Old Testament. 
And so this, this dude, Joseph, was born of Jacob. And, um, and we're going to see Joseph's story. Joseph was, was um, born while Jacob was really old. And, and, he, and he was born um, of, with his mother that Jacob really loved. And so Joseph had this special place in Jacob's heart and in his life. He was his favorite son. Now, I know we're not supposed to have favorites, right? And I know those parents in the room, you've got yours, right? Like, it's just kind of like, no, no, we don't do that. Like, we, we love all of our kids. But, but Jacob, he loved Joseph. He gave him the special coat. Like, none of, none of the other older brothers, none of the other family, they didn't get it like Joseph did. And, um, and, and, and then God gives Joseph a dream. And this dream changed the trajectory of what Joseph thought his life was going to be. Um, and so that's where we're jumping into the story, the favorite son, and then a, a bunch of brothers, and, um, and then a dream that God gave, okay? So, so let's, let's jump into it here. In Genesis 37, let me fast forward to where I was, of the peaks and valleys of Joseph's life, okay? So, so Joseph, Joseph had a dream, and it wasn't like he actually had a dream. He was asleep, and God gave him a vision and a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. Now, now mind you, Joseph at this point is like 17 years old. So he's got like really older brothers. I mean, they're a lot older than he is. And he's coming up to them like, hey guys, hey, listen to my dream. Any of you have younger siblings? Just show of hands if you've got a younger sibling. I mean, do you love and hate your younger sibling, right? Like there's, there's this kind of like tension that happens in those relationships. And, uh, and so that tension was already existing in this relationship, all right? And so this is the dream he's sharing with them. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. This is a, you shouldn't be saying this, Joseph, right? Like, like, this is some common sense right here. You're talking to your older brothers who are bigger than you, and you're telling them, you all are going to bow down to me. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this a great dream? <clears throat> it doesn't go well. Um, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. He had another dream just like that as well, where the stars all bowed down to his, and, and he shared that with them, and, and they were ticked. Like, our younger brother is a cocky jerk. What in the world? We don't like him. We don't like him. Um, Joseph, I mean, imagine, imagine Joseph here. So we're going to kind of story through, through his life, because the first peak that he just had right now in his story at 17, well, he was a favored son, but the first peak, and you can write these down as we go through this, and, and you can see that I drew, I drew kind of peaks and valleys on there, so you can write it down there if you want to. That's just something, a, a picture that I'm going to be using this whole time. But the first peak of jo Joseph's life in this story is that God gives Joseph a dream. I mean, wouldn't you love that? Like if you, if, if it wasn't just like a dream, like you had a, a pizza at midnight and then you had this crazy dream and it was weird and then you woke up in the morning and you're like, that was interesting. Like, no, this was like God-given, Holy Spirit-driven, like here's a dream for your life, Joseph. This is gonna be coming true. See, God is a dream giver. He still is today. 
He still puts purposes into our hearts and into our lives, and he leads us and guides us and directs us into them. Some of them, some of us, we get it as a dream, just like that. It's an instant where it's like, that is exactly what God wants me to do. For some of us, it is a journey of figuring it out and, and your gifting and your calling. I know for me, when I was 12 years old, 12, I'm like, I don't even, I remember the moment it happened. I was walking from my house across the street. I lived across from Wayne Elementary up north end of Worcester. And I was, I was walking over and as I, I was just, I was thinking, I was praying, saying, God, what, are you real? I was really struggling in that time at 12. And I heard God, I heard, a, I heard God. And I know that like you hear people say that, like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm the Lord. You know, it wasn't like that kind of hearing, but there's this thing in my spirit where I heard God say, you're going to lead people and I'm choosing you. And I was 12, I remember that moment. I didn't know what it meant, but that changed the trajectory of my life. I got baptized soon after that, and I'm like, okay, I'm living for you, God. I became a leader in my youth group at 13, and I'm like, like, all of a sudden, all these things started mapping out in my life, and I was still stupid, and I still made stupid decisions, but I had this dream that, like, God put in me. Now, like I said, that's not for everybody. Not everybody gets that, and that's okay. God loves all of us, he loves all of us as his children. And the thing, parents in the room, you have kids. Don't you treat each one of your kids differently? You love them all the same, but each of them are different. You relate to them differently. You have to. That's what God does with each of us. He knows who we are. He made us. And he relates to us the way that he's called us and leads us into what this is. So God gives Joseph this dream. You're going to be a ruler. You're going to lead, and your whole family is going to bow down to you at one point or another. Now, the stupid thing is he started bragging to his family, right? Like, all right, this isn't, now, now we get to the valley, okay? Because peak number one is God gives him a dream. But the valley is coming very quickly because his brothers hate his guts now. And they want to get rid of him. They're tired of him. And so they throw him in a pit, literally, into a pit. Take his coat that his dad gave him that he loved, go went and killed an animal and got blood all over it and took it back to his dad and said, sorry, your son's been killed. And he wasn't killed. They sold him into slavery as a slave trader passed by. And so Joseph's gone. And they're rejoicing, but now they see the mourning of their dad, and so all the brothers are now broken what have we done? We've ruined our dad's life. He's never going to be the same. It's not, it's not a good picture. So, so valley, number one, is, is that he was sold into slavery. That's, that's the first valley we see in the story, right? That, <clears throat> that he has a dream from God. This is what I'm going to do someday. I'm going to lead. Oh, oh, wait a minute. This does not look like the dream I just had, right? Like, it's like, wait a minute. God, you gave me a dream. Ah, and then, no. Now I'm like chained and being dragged to Egypt. This doesn't make sense, does it? I know our desire when we think about our lives is that it would all be peaks, you know? But I don't think any single one of us in this room would say, life is all peaks. <laughs> That's not how our stories work. That's not how we grow, honestly. When we hit the valleys and we're confused, and we're like, wait a minute, this doesn't line up with what I thought God was going to do. This doesn't line up with what I thought my purpose was. Um, those are the moments of refining. Those are the moments where God's doing something that, that, uh, that we may not understand. So imagine the emotions right now of Joseph. 
thrown in a pit, now sold to slavery. Fear? Lots of it, right? Like, what is happening to me? Confusion? Anger at his brothers? You have to be kidding me. Furious at them? What are they doing to me? They're ruining my life. I think there had to also be some humbling in there for a 17-year-old boy who just thought he was going to rule the world. I know some of you have some 17-year-olds you wish would go through that, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Humbling. I mean, he's got to be absolutely humbled to that process. All these different emotions that he's experiencing with his emotional bank account, right? They all just got pulled out. All the coins are dumped all over the floor and all over the place. Now, now, the thing we're going to see over and over again with Joseph's life, and if you read the story, and I'd encourage you to go back and read it this week if you want to. Read, read Joseph's story. You're going to see some key words in there. And the key words are God's favor was on him. So even in this valley, God was with him. God was still fulfilling his dream for Joseph in that valley. And so Joseph got sold then to, uh, to a, a household of an official, of a leader, in Egypt, somebody who was a high-ranking official, and, and Joseph started just serving because he had to. He had no other choice. It was either prison or now I'm a slave. And so he chose, I'm going to just do the best I can here and work the hardest. And that's what he did. He rose up and he, he used his skills and his giftedness and his strength and his youthfulness and his integrity and his character in the midst of that pit to, to climb up, to serve the best that he could to where he actually gained influence in this household of this leader. And so we see from this dream of God down to this pit of sold in slavery, the next thing that we see is that God's favor gave him influence. So even though he's in the pit, God's favor was with him and pulled him up and gave him influence relationally amongst that household. And he then was made the head of that entire household. The owner of the household said, now you're in charge of everything in my household, everything that I own, all the other servants. You're the boss, basically, of everything I got. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, how would you feel if that was you and you're a new employee? I know some of us feel like our job, slavery, but like maybe not, you know, like, but you have a new employer and you're like working hard and, and it's being recognized and you start raising up and all of a sudden, like, you're second in charge over everything, that's, that's a big deal. That's starting to look a little bit for Joseph what that dream was he had when he was 17, right? Like, okay, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is me just rising up and, and, and uh, gaining an influence. And so, so he was um, the servant in Potiphar, Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the captain of the guard, which is a big deal, um, a pretty big role. And, and so he was put in charge of all the staff and all the household in that story. Now, um, now we're doing better, right? Joseph's doing better. But unfortunately, a valley's coming. <laughs> um, because in this household, Potiphar's wife um, started to see Joseph a little differently. And the scripture says he was a young, handsome, well-built guy. I mean, Joseph... I, I don't know. He, he had a six-pack, you know, and, and muscles, and, and, uh, and I guess he looked nice when he was cleaning. I don't know, right? Like, this is, am I making it awkward? Um, <laughs> but she started throwing passes on him. Like, I like him. My, my husband's working like crazy. I mean, he's always, he's always in the palace. He's always taking care of the guard. He's always, and, um, and I, I would like to be with Joseph. And so he, she starts trying to seduce him. Like, why don't, you, why don't you come to bed with me? 
I'm sure she was probably a very attractive woman in the role and the position that Potiphar had in that household. And so the door was open. We're going to see a line in the sand here for Joseph because he had some choices to make, right? The favor of God was on him. He was earning and gaining an influence. And now his job was threatened because he is second under her in leading the household. So his boss is saying, you better, you better sleep with me or things are going to go south real quick. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he kept pushing her away and pushing her away until she sets a trap for him and lets all the other household staff out for the day. You guys get the day off. And Joseph shows up not knowing it. And she just puts it all on, like, come with me, come with me, come with me. And he turns and he flees and she grabs his outer coat and it comes off of him and he runs and gets the heck out of there because he's a man of integrity. And then she is ticked off furious, right? Housewives of Egypt, you know? Like she's like, well, he didn't give me what I wanted. So like, uh, so, so he shows back up, Potiphar shows back up and Potiphar Here's this story, and she's like, he tried to seduce me. She changes the story. He tried to seduce me, and, and whenever you know, he was going to be caught, he ran off and left his cloak here and, and frames him for something he did not do. Now, this is not looking like a peak anymore, is it? And so he goes, and he finds him, and he throws him into jail and says, you are no longer in charge. You're no longer whatever. Doesn't ask questions. You're, you're out of here, and you're in jail. So we get peak, or valley number two is he is accused and then imprisoned. Joseph went from a pretty big high now to a pretty big low. And here's the thing. This valley, he had no choice in it, right? The first valley, did he have a choice in it of being thrown into the pit and sold into slavery? I, I think he kind of did. I think he was foolish to start bragging to his family that he was going to rule over them. If he was a little bit older and a little bit wiser, he would have held his mouth shut, Right? But he was young and he was foolish and excited. I have a dream. Have anybody been young, foolish, and excited? Right? Yeah. Like, and so he, I think some of that, he got thrown in the pit because of some of the things he did, but it still wasn't his choice to be in the pit or be sold into slavery. And this one for sure was not his choice. He was doing the right thing. And even in doing the right thing was experiencing the bad thing, the wrong thing. And now has a whole household thinking he did something he didn't do. And an official who's like really in charge in Egypt thinking bad things about his character and about what he tried to do to his household and his family and his staff, even though none of it was true. Have you ever been there? I think this valley was harder than this one. I think it's harder when we do the right things and we try to control our own emotions and yet, and yet the circumstances around us try to take us out whether it's the enemy's work, whether it's just sin nature in other people, whether it's the culture we live in, whatever it is, this one's a hard one. This is that question I think so many people wrestle with. Well, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Like that's a big question of people that don't really know God yet and know, know Christ. They're like, well, why would I want to be with God? Because there's, there's bad things that happen to good people. Why, if God lets that, then who is this God? I don't want to be part of him. And the reality is bad things happen to good people because there's bad people because there's sinful people, because there's free will, there's choice. And Potiphar's wife had a choice in the circumstance, and Joseph had a choice. Who made the right one? Joseph, his character, his character. 
So even though he was imprisoned, um, we're going to see in a moment, that's not where he stayed. That wasn't the end of his story. Um, and so I want to take a little side note, okay? A little side note on this, because I think this is the, when we're talking about peaks and valleys of life, this is the one we all wrestle with the most. This is, this is the one that like is this emotional like bank account thing that's like, this really, really sucks. This is really hard. I've, I don't know how many times I've had in my life people accuse me and speak bad about me, and I think it's a monthly occurrence. But, um, and, and there's something that happens when you're in those valleys. And it's this whole thing called emotional resilience. It's a psychological term, you know, uh, that studies have gone on over and over and over again. That when you go through valleys in life and difficult things in life, um, the next time you go through a valley similar to that, that you went through before, it doesn't affect you as much, right? That's this emotional resilience that you build up. So, like, I remember, um, I, I, you know, I... I started everything young. I mean, I got a call in the ministry at 12. I got married at 19. I like, just everything I did was young. So I don't know why God chose young and foolish, Tim, to, to be ready for that stuff. I wasn't. You know, I had to learn a lot, a lot, a lot of things. And for me, it was a lot of those valleys and a lot of those moments. But I remember when, when I was married in 19 and some of the arguments that my wife and I had. No, we argue, okay? Um, I know it's the pastor and his wife, and it doesn't happen much anymore, which is awesome. But our first year of marriage, it was a daily occurrence. <laughs> and the thing, when we argued, we didn't argue well, you know? Like, like we, we did like two different premarital counseling things that were really, really good. Like my wife went to Cedarville College, and they had this whole program for couples that, that were wanting to get married, and we went through that. And, and our... our uh, um, our mentor was like the, the professor over biblical studies of all of Cedarville. Talk about intimidating for a 19-year-old, right? Like he's drilling me about theology. I'm like, I don't know. I just know I want to do ministry. And it, it was like intense. And we learned all about communication and, and all this kind of stuff. But when the rubber hit the road, the first year was hard. We, we argued a lot about things that didn't matter. And our, and our dating relationship before we got to marriage was long distance. So it would be like phone calls. Do you remember having long distance bills? Anybody remember that? Like I got some folks in the room, like you have cell phones now, none of that exists. Like I would pay $200 a month for long distance calls to my girlfriend and then my fiance and it was worth every penny, right? Like I would do it. Um, and, uh, and the thing is though, when we first got married, we didn't know how to argue well. One of us had to leave so we could call each other and figure out how to communicate because that's the only way we knew how to settle an argument was over the phone. Right? And then we eventually learned how to do it face to face, and then we eventually learned how to actually like communicate and not protect ourselves and have understanding. And and the thing I think the thing I think about is those difficult times early on when we're just figuring stuff out, like it was constant, like, whoa, big pours out and okay, we're good, and, and then big pours out, and then and then we'd make out when we were done. And like like you know, like it'd be like all that tension and then um, I'm embarrassing my wife right now, really bad. Um, but the longer we got in those valleys, got a lot more shallow. And those same emotions I would have when I was young and like kind of foolish, now when those same arguments come up, it was more like uh, just a few pennies emotionally. And I had a resilience to know how to handle it, and it went back in pretty quick. Does that make sense? And so when we go through these valleys, when it's like, I did the right thing, but the wrong thing is happening to me. The more of those valleys we experience and choose, choose to lead ourselves well, the less those valleys affect our emotional bank account. 
Is everybody with me? And so we see Joseph's life this way, these ups and downs. And God is teaching him and training him and preparing him for that dream he had was when he was 17, but it wasn't yet, right? Not yet. God still had work to do on him. It's this imagery of, of, of our, our deepest growth happens in the crucible. Do you know what a crucible is? A crucible is, is, a, is a very like fireproof container that metal gets poured into and then heated up to crazy temperatures that it turns into liquid. And when the metal turns into liquid, all of a sudden, all the imperfections, all the contaminants, they all boil to the surface of that metal. I'll use silver as an example. Like when you do that with silver, all of a sudden, the very top has all these imperfections. And so to refine it, then they, they scoop off and skim off continually that top layer, which is just the junk, you know? It's not, it's not supposed to be there. And the thing is, if you had silver and you didn't do that process, you would just have dirty silver. You would have silver with all sorts of contaminants in it, and it wouldn't be refined, it wouldn't be pure, it wouldn't be worth as much. It's the same thing in our life, that God puts us through these crucible moments, these heat moments in the valleys, because he loves us. And I know that sounds weird, right? I love my children, therefore I discipline my children because I want them to grow up as disciplined young men. God does the same thing and puts us through these valleys and he refines us. And so those impurities, those imperfections, that sin nature, that pride, the, the selfishness, all those things bubble to the top in those moments of the valley. And then God says, finally, now let's skim that off. And so then you grow to a new peak and you have a new level of character, a new level of integrity, a new level of growth in your life. And you have much more emotional resilience when the next valley comes. See, when we're talking about leading ourselves, this is what it looks like. It's a lifelong process. I wish it was like four years of school and you graduated, right? But we know when you graduate, it's just the beginning. <laughs> and, and a new season starts. A new season comes. Um, I think I put, did I put this quote up here? If I didn't, I wish I would have. I did. I, I, this was a quote from an article I read this week, and I'm like, that's it. That's it. When we're like Joseph in those, in those valley moments, even when we didn't cause them, it says, look at your circumstances through the lens of God's character rather than evaluating God's character through the lens uh, or through the circumstances of your life. Do you see the difference in point of view? When you go through crap in your life, he's saying, uh, when you go through that stuff in your life, don't then judge God's character based upon your circumstances. It's like, well, life sucks. That means God sucks. This wouldn't be happening if God was a real God and loved me, right? That's the wrong lens. That's a selfish lens. That's a self-focused lens. You won't grow with that lens. Instead, when we go through those valleys and we say rather than evaluating God's character through that, we value, uh, evaluate our circumstances through the lens of God's character. What is he doing in my life? How is he challenging me? What is he doing to make me grow? What is he refining in this fire right now, this imperfections that need to surface to the top? What is he doing in my life? And I'll tell you, for that process, you need some people around you. It is so hard to do that on your own because we're blinded by our own foolishness, right? We can convince ourselves of many, many things, can't we? Like, and prove it over and over and over again. When we bring other people into our life, that's why small groups around here are a big deal, 
when you have some, a circle of people who love you, no matter how stupid you are at times, like, and they're going to go with you, and they're going to pray for you, and they're going to walk alongside you, and you're going to do the same thing for them, and you see things in one another, that becomes a part of that refining process. When somebody walks with you in the valley, but they're not in the valley with you, and they're just looking at the valley with you and saying, oh, I think God might be doing this in your life. I'm just going to keep praying for you. And then they just show you empathy. I know it sucks. It sucks down there. There's just no way around it. Like, this sucks. Sometimes that's all we need to say to somebody. They just need to know somebody knows how bad this is right now in my life. And all of a sudden, when you do that, some weight comes off your shoulders or their shoulders as you do that. God teaches us emotional resilience and things don't affect our emotional bank account as much as we choose to grow. Self-leadership, the Spirit's work in us. All right, is everybody with me? This is good stuff. This is really good stuff. And so now let's get back to Joseph's life. So, so now he's imprisoned, not because of anything he did. And, and in prison, he does it again. God's favor is on him. And he starts saying, what can I do to help? How can I serve? Until the, the guard in charge of all the prison says, I like Joseph. I know he's supposed to be here inside. I want him to help me. And so Joseph actually starts leading all the other people and all the other things that are happening in the prison. And, and I'm not going to share this whole part of the story, but all of a sudden the king or the uh, pharaoh, the king gets really ticked off at two of the, his employees. He sends them to jail. They both have dreams and very clear dreams. And they're like, what does that dream mean? And Joseph gets the word of God and says, this is what your dream means. And one of them was, you're going to be restored to your position, the cupbearer. Well, that's good. Cupbearers are important because they taste test everything. And if the king dies or doesn't, he's the one that gets first death before the king. All right. Um, that's an important job and a trust, right? And then the baker, who must have done something really bad, like the bread was just bad that day, right? I don't know what, what the, why he was so ticked up. But his dream was, sorry, you're going to get your head cut off. And both of them came true. And Joseph said to the cupbearer that got restored his position, remember me. Remember me when you're up there. And he didn't. He forgot him for like a couple years, you know, a year. It's like, so Joseph still goes back. He's still in prison and he's still doing what he was doing until the king has a dream, right? Until Pharaoh has a dream and nobody can interpret it. And he's like, what does this dream mean? What is going on? And then the cupbearer's like, oh, Yeah. I remember this dude, Joseph. I think he might be able to interpret your dream. So Joseph comes up and you'll see over and over again, Joseph's response is always humility and how can I serve? And, and the first thing he says, I can't do that, but the Lord is with me and the Lord has a word, you know, because the Lord's favor is on Joseph. And Joseph interprets the dream of the king, of the ruler. And all of a sudden, with that Dream and that interpretation, his king, his ruler, sees that the Lord is on Joseph and says, well, you are now second in charge of Egypt, of everything. What? So his valley was pretty deep, but all of a sudden he becomes, he becomes second in charge. And this is the moment that we see that God has taken and shown his character Joseph's character from a dream from God to sold to slavery to then being made head of a household to then being accused and thrown into prison. Now he becomes second in charge of everything. Everything. He is now positioned for his purpose. God positioned him into that 
seat and into that spot. Now, now, during this time, we remember he was 17. We know some of the ages of his story. He was 17 when he had a dream, right? And by this time in the story, he's 30. That's a long time past for how, how many years he served in the household and then how many years he was in prison. And now he's, he's around 30 and he's being put second in charge. I know when I was 30, I shouldn't have been in charge of anything, but I was, right? Like I was not there yet. Um, but God had already refined Joseph's life, character, and, let, and rested his favor upon him. And now Joseph get, had the dream and knew what God and what was going to happen in their culture. And the dream was this. All of Egypt's going to go through seven years of plenty. I mean, the harvest is going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. But then after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. It's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. And Joseph's job was to make sure that they saved what they needed during that time of plenty to take care of everybody for that time when it was going to be really, really bad. That's a pretty big deal. He's in charge of the life and death of, of everybody. <laughs> no pressure, Joseph. You know, like you went from like, you know, cleaning out the jail cells to now you're in charge to make sure everybody lives or dies. Wow. Wow. So now he's in charge and, and he's doing what he's, his plan got put into place and they're saving all the harvest and they're, they're putting it up in the barns and they're, they're taking care and preparing for that season when it was going to be lean and, 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 uh, and they're going to need things. And so now we're jumping a little bit ahead in the story because two years into the famine. So it's been two years and people have been coming back to, uh, to the capital. They've been coming back to Joseph. They've been asking for food and they've been distributing to make sure everybody has what they need. And then all of a sudden you think this is it. That's his purpose, right? He's now saving Egypt. All of a sudden he is thrown into another pit, a pretty big valley actually. And one that all of us at one point in our life are going to have to face. Because as he is distributing food, all of a sudden, his brothers, who don't have much, come seeking for help. And they come right up to Joseph. They don't recognize him. It's been a long time since they've seen Joe, right? And in this moment, we see a crazy valley happen in Joseph's life. Because he now has to face his deepest wound. His brothers were his deepest wound in his life, right? His brothers who sold him into slavery, who betrayed him, who, who ruined his father's life, who's been mourning this whole time. Where's my son gone? I've lost my son, my favorite son, the son I love so dearly. And now here's Joseph. What would you do in that moment? I don't know if you've ever had some like dream moments of what you could do to some of your siblings. <clears throat> Imagine now you're second in charge of everything and they've done something like that. They sold you into slavery. What emotions would you be going through at that moment? I mean, you would be ticked off. You would be like so angry. How dare you come back here? They don't know who he is. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. I mean, just the furiousness. And now you have the power to do whatever you want to them. Talk about an internal struggle. You have power and authority. You have anger, bitterness, and you can do whatever you want in this instant. And we see now this part of the story is a huge valley for Joseph. He struggles. It says so often he goes away, hides himself, and weeps and weeps and weeps and mourns with this internal battle that he's going on inside of his life. He's like, I don't know what to do with this wound. I don't know what do I do. I, 
do I take care of them because they are my family and do I help them out and or do I just say screw you get out of here you know what you did to me and show them a certain finger and let them go home right like like what do I do in this moment how do I struggle how do I uh, and that's that's what Joseph was going through in that moment and we see he brings them in and he like talks to them and still they have no idea who he is and then he frames them to try to get them to come back and, and like all sorts of tension happening in that moment see he cared for his dad and he was asking is your father alive he's trying to inquire is Jacob still around and he's asked about his younger brother Benjamin because that's who he loved Benjamin didn't represent what his older brothers did Benjamin and, and Joseph had the same mom and they, they were dearly loved and, um, and so he's asking what about Benjamin do you, do you have a younger brother so he wanted personal justice but he also loved his family I don't know if you've ever had to face your deepest wound before I'm going to say that you have a hard time fulfilling God's purpose for your life without dealing with your deepest wound first because your deepest wound becomes the lens by which you experience your peaks and valleys right when he was in jail do you think he was thinking about his brothers I would have been they sold me into slavery and things were going okay but now right that wound I'm sure continually brought itself up through his whole life story and through his journey when we go through these peaks and valleys I just want to encourage you when you finally get to that moment in your life when you're willing to or God forces your hand to go down to that valley of dealing with your deepest wound whatever that was or whatever it is God's promise is he is with you there he won't leave you he won't forsake you he won't judge you he won't condemn you he will show compassion. He will walk beside you. And he will love you till that wound is healed. But when we're talking about self-leadership in that wrestling, we have choices to make. Am I going to get help? Am I going to talk to somebody about this wound? Am I going to find a safe place where somebody can help me walk through the other side of this and climb up out of this pit? Or am I going to choose to continue to let that come back in my life over and over and over again? That valley will come, that wound will be there, and it will remain until you face it. And this moment in Joseph's story, he literally had to face it and deal with it and do something about it. And here's the amazing thing. Joseph's character that we've learned through his whole story continued because you get to the end of all of that, and he chose to say this to them because his brothers finally figured out this is our brother and talk about fear. What is he going to do to us? guilt, all that stuff. <clears throat> and Joseph says, you intended to harm me. That was your intent when you sold me. But God, he intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The wound has now lost its power. What you intended for harm what the enemy intends for harm in your life, God says, I can use that, I can heal it, and then watch me lead you into your purpose. Because when you walk into your purpose, now whatever that was that the enemy meant to wound you and to crush you and to steal and kill from you, God can use it 
for his purpose, redeem, restore, to bless however he wants to. Talk about a godly character, emotional resilience to get to the other side of that wounding, and then what God does on the other side of it for him, for his family, because now Joseph lived into his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose wasn't just to do what he was doing so that the people in Egypt, he gets to the very end, and this is the last peak, okay? He then fulfills God's purpose. Not just his purpose, he fulfills God's purpose for his life. And God's purpose for his life was that he, yes, he would be used to save Egypt and save many, many lives, but that he would also save his family because his family was God's family. His family was God's chosen people. This was the birthplace and the salvation of, of Israel, of the Jewish nation that was going to build and grow. And God used Joseph in that story to save, yes, the Egyptians, but also to save his people and to see his people grow. God's purpose. That's what we all want. Not just our purpose, God's purpose in our life. So, so here's, here's where we want to go. I'm going a little bit long, but you all love me enough that we're going to go there, okay? Um, when you think about your life, do you have similar patterns? When you think about the peaks of your life and you think about the valleys of your life, like when you think about these ups and downs, it might be a good practice for you this week to do exactly what I just did with Joseph's life, but for you. Because then what you might see is this thread of God's story all the way through it. Not the lens of my woundedness, but the lens of God's faithfulness. Because what did Joseph learn? What did Joseph learn? Joseph learned this. I'm, I think I have a slide with what Joseph learned on it. So, so when we do this for our own life, and we see where God was in the peaks and valleys, and the choices we made, like some of it's on us, some of it's God, right? Uh, that, that we see these learnings about God. Joseph learned that God was faithful, no matter what. Sold to slavery, faithful. Head of household, faithful. In the jail, faithful. Purpose, faithful. God showed his faithfulness in Joseph's life all through it. That God was loving. He didn't leave him that whole time. That God was sovereign, meaning God's plan was going to happen, no matter what Joseph did and chose. We were thinking about this week in teaching team, like talking about Samson. Um, Samson's life was a mess. I mean, just messy. We might talk about it later in this series um, because Samson was selfish. He was a jerk. He like killed people. And yet still God fulfilled his purpose in him. So his choices were messy. His life was a wreck, but God still fulfilled his purpose. That God is still sovereign, even in our stupid choices. And that God is definitely a promise keeper. When he says he's going to do something, he gave him a dream and then he fulfilled it in his life, right? So when you think about your life, when you think about the trajectory of your life and these peaks and valleys, what is God teaching you? What are your learnings about the character of God? Not through the lens of you, but the lens of who he is and his character, right? As we're talking about this. So how does this fit with self-leadership? It's all about choices. No matter what, the peaks and valleys are coming. Amen? We have choices in the peaks and valleys. Self-leadership. Am I going to live with integrity? Am I going to do what's right? Am I going to honor God? And I'm gonna, am I going to trust that God's sovereign? Or am I going to be an emotional wreck? Am I going to blame other people? Am I going to be self-focused? Um, and am, am I going to hurt people when I'm in the valley? So they come into the valley with me. Our choices. Self-leadership. Where are we meeting God in the midst of our story? Here's the thing with God. 
Sometimes he gives, sometimes he takes away. But no matter what, he's faithful. And he's with us on our journey.